Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Greg Hill, and welcome to Ready, Steady, Everything Goes in the Fandango Pyramid of Potatoes because your chance of a lifetime is in the bag. Our celebrity contestant today is Kyone Wolf. Tell us one thing about yourself. Well, Greg, obviously I'm a big fan of Ready, Steady, Everything Goes in the Fandango Pyramid of Potatoes because your chance of a lifetime is in the bag. Of course you are. Ready, Steady, Everything Goes in the Fandango Pyramid of Potatoes because your chance of a lifetime is in the bag is America's favorite game show in its 5 a.m. time slot. Are you ready to play? Yes, but I could use just a little bit of a refresher about the rules. Right. You start out with 500 Fandango dollars. You can place them in the catapult or on the trapdoor. Then we spin the big wheel and pick a category like melting points of common metals. But if the clown comes down, it's fire hose time! You get to choose between boxing a kangaroo or climbing the ladder with the magical light sticks. Then you'll climb in the fishbowl where we shower you with 4,000 pieces of ticker tape, one of which contains the secret word that unlocks the magic castle where the grand prize is waiting for someone who guesses the name of the tiny frog inside the plant. And then what? I'm not sure. Most people die much earlier in the process. What happens next, Johnny the Judge? No one else is here, is there? No. And is ready, steady, everything goes in the Fandango Pyramid of Potatoes because your chance of a lifetime is in the bag a real game show? Not as such. I I got laid off at the water park, and my wife seems more interested in her beekeeping than in me. So I rented this space at the Marriott. That's too sad. I don't want to listen anymore. Do you think it's really sad? Because they have these game shows where you win if you have the saddest story. I have to go, Greg, but I do believe your luck is going to change. Your luck is going to change is my third favorite game show. Okay, I gotta go. I'm backing out of the room now. But here's a show about the past, present, and future of game shows. And now the three-time champion of Bowling for Popcorn... Colin McEnroe. And Bowling for Popcorn was on in uh, 1981. I think John O'Hurley was the host. Uh, all right, so we're uh, we're going to talk about game shows today. We're going to talk about the past, the present, and the future of game shows. Um, what they have been, what they are, and 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 what they may persist in being. And and obviously, game shows as a concept exist in one way, and there are various sort of competing and and theoretically threatening models. I um, mean, reality television is, you know, essentially different from a game show. Uh, although when it first started to debut, one of the assessments of reality TV shows like Big Brother was, well, it's essentially a game show, right? Well, no, not really. So let's try to figure out, first of all, what a game show is uh, and, and talk about sort of ways in which that paradigm persists and what the kind of underlying dream of it all is. Uh, 
with us in studio is Zalman Nakamovsky, former guest on uh, well, on our show, but also a former contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's also been involved in the taping and production of several game show pilots uh, and an episode of the, of the hit game show Cash Cab. Uh, also with us, uh, Bob Bowden, executive producer of The Chase on the Game Show Network, former executive vice president of the Fox Reality Channel, and Adam Needif, uh, a game show expert and author of, among other uh, game show-related books, Quizmaster, The Life and Times and Fun and Games of Bill Cullen. Uh, Adam has worked for Wheel of Fortune and The Price is Right and is the founder of Home Game Enterprises. Is that enough expertise for you? And actually, we also have, and we'll play for you in a couple of chunks, uh, some of you may remember that Richard Klein was here in our studios uh, along with Jerry Adler uh, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about to them about other stuff, but then we made Richard Klein stay and talk to him about, about uh, his life in game shows, which is not inconsiderable. So um, let's get started here. And, and Adam Needif and uh, Bob Bowden, as I say, are both with us right now by phone. Uh, and Adam Needif, I'm going to sort of ask you and Bob to kind of take us into the, the murky, misty past uh, of game shows. Game shows, I assume, kind of arose somewhere uh, on the cusp uh, of network radio in America and, and, the, and the first stirrings of network television. Tell, tell us how game shows began. Really early beginnings of uh, game shows. This is Adam, by the way. Yeah. Um, the really early beginnings of game shows uh, were, as you said, network radio. Uh, there was a quiz show called, I believe, the Pop Quiz, which was the first uh, quiz show. Uh, and there were a number of them that were local uh, programs. There were uh, programs like uh, Uncle Jim's Question B and uh, very, very basic, very simple shows like that that just aired on the local stations. It wasn't really until they, uh, the uh, late 1930s that they went network-wide and uh, became really widely spread. Um, but audiences latched onto them. They enjoyed them. It was certainly the right show for the end of the Depression because, you know, the country was moving again. Uh, the economy was starting to build itself back up. And uh, giving away a prize was a good way for the manufacturers to show off the fact that goods were flowing again and they had stuff to give away. And it was just a nice, vicarious way to have some fun on the radio. You could listen to somebody else answer questions, and you tried to play along with them, and you fantasized about what you would do with 5 or $10 or whatever the prize was. And it was just really, really good entertainment. That's why game shows were popular back then. It's why they persist to this day. Let's hear a little bit of what uh, one of those game shows would have sounded like. This is a clip from the show Vox Pop. Well, Glenn, it's really been lots of fun and very enlightening to talk with you. And just so you won't forget us box poppers, our sponsor, Broma Seltzer, wants you to have a few little gifts. It's a 100% waterproof watch that winds itself. And it's anti-magnetic, so you don't have to worry about wearing it around any of those radar sets or radio sets. And it's shockproof, and it is the famous Mido watch. Congratulations. All right, so... Um, Bob Bowden, one of the things that did happen, particularly in the early days of television, the, the way I understand it, and you can uh, sort me out on this, but um, w- was that really game shows on primetime television became true mass entertainment, became the kinds of shows that, quote-unquote, everybody watched, right? right? The, the, the primetime game shows that were in vogue in the 1950s were just about as popular as, as anything could be. That's right, uh, Colin. In the last uh, half of the the 50s, that decade, uh, there were quite a few uh, game shows that were really captivating the attention of the country uh, en masse. And uh, the the most popular ones, uh, the most memorable ones, 
include the $64,000 question, which started as a radio game show, uh, which was called Take It or Leave It uh, on radio, and it was the, the $64 question. Uh, when it went to TV, the prize increased, and it, it wound up in prime time. And, and many of the contestants who showed off their knowledge in those days became national um, superstars. Uh, you know, the, the, the premise of the show was that people who had an expertise in something that might have been unexpected, something that was unique to their, their life, uh, that was not what they did for a living or what you would expect, uh, was their area of expertise. So uh, one of the famous stories was um, Dr. Joyce Brothers, who appeared on that show. Uh, she was a noted psychologist and, and, and uh, personality, and she had an expertise in boxing. Um, and so she went on the show and, and did quite well and, and uh, answered a lot of questions on boxing uh, and became a national hero for that. Uh, so those shows continued to to gain in popularity, and um, one notable show that, that became the, uh, the sort of focal point of what became known as the Scandal Era uh, was 21. Uh, that was the famous show where Charles Van Doren became a national hero uh, as he showed off his knowledge and expertise on a, a wide variety of subjects, and, uh, and he actually defeated... Um, a longtime champion uh, named Herbert Stemple, and um, it turned out later, after long investigations, that uh, that there was some coaching done. This became the subject of the movie Quiz Show that was uh, released uh, a couple of decades ago, and uh, the, suddenly uh, it all came to you know kind of a crashing halt when it was found out that there were some manipulations in the actual gameplay. You know, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that and also about how they, these shows came bounding back in the 70s. But let's pause about that. I want to talk to all three of you uh, uh, about sort of what we're talking about so far. So Zalman Nakamovsky, you know, really we're talking about already we're talking about a few different kinds of shows. There's one kind of show where basically an average person comes on and interacts frequently with some kind of minor celebrities uh, back in those days. It would be, you know, maybe Bennett Surf or Peggy Cass or, uh, I mean, you know, we, we could rattle all of them off, you know, and, and has a good time, right? And maybe make some money or, I mean, it sort of depends. But there's sort of that. And then there were these other shows that were really, at least apparently, tests of people's knowledge, celebrations of the American polymath. Um, I'm assuming it's the latter kind of show that, that has always sort of engaged you and, and made you want to uh, do these quiz shows. Well, it's a latter show that I'm stronger at. You know, I'd love to sort of interact and uh, chit-chat with celebrities, et cetera, but the fact is lots of people can do that. That doesn't necessarily play to my strength. I've got, you know, kind of a uh, natural good memory. I've developed it over time. I've, you know, sort of paid attention to the little details and noticed patterns and questions, so I'm stronger at that. I like the other stuff, but the other stuff is highly subjective and it's very reliant on the host. Here the entertainment is what's actually happening, questions versus person, a little bit of strategy, but it's not reliant on the subjective. The entertainment is the actual sport. It's the difference between a sporting event and or it's the difference between a sporting event with scoring and, say, a sporting event that requires judges. 
that's one way of looking at it. And, and you know, Adam Needif, you know, Bob Bowden's talking about um, those scandals and then, then the, the marvelous uh, Robert Redford movie or directed movie uh, quiz show about it. You know, the, those are often held up as this really profound loss of American innocence, this sense that game shows in the late 1950s really were this very exciting thing in which people had the opportunity to also feel very good about the idea that smart people were getting justly rewarded for actually knowing things, which was you know, probably very much part of the kind of overall post-war sense of good cheer, Eisenhower era of uh, of, of American competence. Um, and so uh, it, it's almost hard to overstate the degree to which this was kind of a blow uh, to to a real magic formula, right? It really was. Uh, one of the things that really outraged the uh, general public was it had gotten to a point where for a brief period, game shows were held sort of in the same regard as sporting events. There were newspapers that literally printed box scores of game show broadcasts. You could check the newspapers <laughs> and see the contestants' names and see how much they won, questions, uh, answers missed, and that kind of information. Uh, so there was a very brief period when game shows were held in that kind of a high regard. The other reason that I think the American public at that time was very, very distressed about it was the fact that uh, rock and roll was beginning to emerge, and people were disturbed by the fact that, you know, young folks were listening to this very savage, very uh, very intense music, and they didn't know what to make of it. And worst of all, they were sort of idolizing the stars that were seeing the music. And for a brief period, game shows gave people uh, sort of alternative role models for the youth of America. I remember reading a quote once that referred to Charles Van Dorn as a safe version of Elvis. This was somebody that you could sort of hold up to your kids because he was very good-looking, very charismatic, and very outgoing, like Elvis, except that Charles Van Doren's uh, area of being famous was that he was very, very knowledgeable and very well-read and very well-educated. And, hey, kids, you can aspire to be this really good-looking, charismatic, outgoing guy if you just get a good education. And so I think that was the big disappointment of the quiz show scandals was realizing that the people that you would put on this pedestal for several years – uh, weren't really what they seemed. That they had been complicit in this scandal, and they had been involved in the planning of it. You know, Bob Bowden. So that that was sort of one model, the, the model that was twenty one, in which somebody like Charles Van Doren, and even to a certain degree Herbie Stemple, you know, w- would become celebrities for being smart. But the uh, the other model that was being pursued even then, and has never really gone away, is the democratization of the idea of celebrity. Right. So you have somebody who comes on to tell the truth, let's say, who's not famous, not even famous enough to be instantly recognizable, maybe has some uh, interesting job, interesting background, and that. That person gets to interact and maybe banter, along with a couple of other imposters who are also not famous people, and maybe banter with Orson Bean and Arlene Francis and Kitty Carlisle. And, and so you have this kind of sense that there's this rising class of television celebrities and this opportunity for the average person in some of these game shows, at least for a day, at least for however long the show took, to kind of hang out with those people and be part of their putatively witty banter, right? Yeah, I think you know. I think a lot of the uh, the uh, core of the appeal of game shows is 
sort of the wish fulfillment, the dream come true, the instant celebrity phenomenon uh, that, that plucks people from obscurity and puts them into the limelight for a brief moment. And in most cases, that uh, obscurity returns to their life after their appearance, but in some cases, it lives on. And, and if they uh, display some type of uh, amazing knowledge or talent or, or some other quality that captures America, uh, their celebrity can can grow and can become, uh, you know, a, a, what the person is about instead of this sort of average everyday citizen. Um, the, the beauty of to tell the truth in its time was that back then, before the information superhighway, if you will, there there was a, a middle ground between fame and and uh, obscurity, and uh, the the show captured, you know people who should be famous and did important things but weren't known. And in today's day and age, anybody who does anything that's that's important is a star already before a TV camera can even find them. Uh they're on YouTube, they're they're, you know, doing their own uh podcast or or show somewhere uh in a in a different platform than television. And it, it would be awful hard to do to tell the truth today because uh, there there really is no more anonymity. Well, you know, I want to talk about that. I was going to talk about that later, but as long as you open that door, Bob Moden, let's walk through it. Um, that sounds like something you do in a game show, actually. Yeah, but, is it door number three? Door no, yes, yeah, the door number. Let's walk through door number three. So, um, and Zalman, I'll go to you for a second. So, you know, back in the era of twenty-one, I mean, there it was you could try to prepare, and of course, it turned out maybe uh, somebody would come in and help you prepare. But I mean, getting ready for a game show was, you know, maybe something that you, you could sort of just try to do by general education. Right now. We live in this information saturated society where there there people have access to information tools and, and, and number crunching tools and data crunching tools so that um, it seems like in some of the ways that Bob Bowden's talking about some some of the old game show concepts which depended on like a, a piece of knowledge being inaccessible, inaccessible to almost everybody. Th- that can't happen anymore. And the way people prepare, I mean, somebody gamed the prices right a few years ago, right? And and figured out, you know, it really wasn't all that hard. If you sort of thought it all through, you could actually get the exact prices. And, and I would imagine for somebody like you, Zalman, who prepares for some of these pilots and stuff like that, getting ready is a different job maybe than it was 10 or 20 years ago. I wouldn't say it's entirely different. I mean, the fact is you've always had, or I don't know about always, I'm, uh, but at least certainly for the last 25 years, you've at least had things like LexisNexis. You've had access to libraries. Even these more obscure game shows, it would all be stuff that's verifiable. It wouldn't be things that you had to be on the mountaintop in Machu Picchu to see it with your own eyes. Mm-hmm. It would be things people looked at. And actually, the interesting thing about Dr. Joyce Brothers, for instance, she deliberately chose boxing because it was something that, A, she knew would be very astounding for a uh, sort of blonde, petite Jewish psychologist to know a lot about. Um, and B, she actually wasn't, I believe, that well-known until she mm-hmm. got on the show. She used that as a launching pad. So, again, it's rather similar. That was her YouTube. She didn't have the ability to sort of uh, do it in a samizdat kind of way. But the fact is she found something to make herself a celebrity, and she found a talent set. She knew she had a good memory, found a sphere that she could specialize in. So I think that it hasn't really fundamentally changed. I do think some of the celebrity stuff, the minor celebrities, people coming out of nowhere, but even there, a lot of people, you know, certainly in the early days of um, 
in the early days of American Idol and such, there were people that would come out of nowhere either because of their talent or their profound lack thereof, but belief they had it, and would become you know sensations um, from that without actually having gone the uh, sort of YouTube route. And even nowadays, there's still that wow moment. I think that still happens. It's less rare, but I think it happens. In terms of preparation, I don't think it's a fundamental change other than the fact is that's the case for everything, even sports. Mm. Nobody used to review film. You know, Tony Gwynn was a pioneer at that, and that was only 22 years ago. <laughs> I like that you know it was 22 years ago. All right, that's so game show. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to have Bob uh, and, and Adam uh, also uh, and, and, and Zalman walk us through this a little bit, sort of walk through what a game show really is. I realize that's an eight-hour description, but we'll try to, to compress it a little bit. So let's take a break. Our number, 860-275-7266. We'll be back after this. All right, so we're back. Um, I mentioned that we had talked to Richard Klein a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so let's hear a quick part of that uh, interview. Uh, here's a Richard Klein actor and sometimes game show host. We're talking to Richard Klein, storied actor Richard Klein. We're so lucky. Uh, he's in Connecticut doing the Sunshine Boys uh, out in the stores. And while, while that's happening, we have him here. And we decided we would ask him a few questions about his life in game shows, which is an extensive, extensive life. I have the file in front of me. I may know more of his game show appearances than uh, even he knows. But you, you've hosted two game show pilots, Jumble in 1988 and To Tell the Truth in 1990. Do you, do you remember those, those pilot experiences? Well, I remember To Tell the Truth was a biggie because Mark Goodson was, of course, the producer of it. And it had an iconic history before that. Why they brought it back, who knows. So I do the pilot, and the lovely Kitty Carlisle was to my right here, and um, Alex Trebek was on the panel. So it was Kitty Carlisle, Alex Trebek, and two other players to be named later. I can't remember who they are. Oh, Ahmad Rashad, whatever. So I do the pilot thing, and it did not test well. Richard Klein did not test well. My manager said, no, it didn't test well. So a few months go by. I was living in California, and my mother calls me, and she says, you're on TV. I just saw you. You told me you didn't do the show. Why am I yelling in the mic? She said, you didn't do the show. I said, no, Ma, I did not do the show. They got, as a matter of fact, <laughs> they gave Alex Trebek the job, which mm. is a big, there's a mystery, of course. Mm. He's one of the greatest. So I called my manager. He called Mark Goodson Productions, and apparently in New York, a technician had put the pilot on the <laughs> air. So my manager calls Mark Goodson Productions, and then he calls me back. He says, You'll be getting a check for ten grand, and they're, <laughs> and they're sending over a fruit basket. I said, Thank you very much. So that was my to tell the truth situation. But you've actually been on a lot of game shows. It's this, I love game shows. Yeah. When I was living in New York in the early seventies, I would watch then the ten thousand dollar pyramid, and I was doing a play at the Plaza Hotel Cabaret with Ron Silver and Jeff Goldblum called El Grande de Coca-Cola, which was one of the most hilarious productions I've ever been in. Anyway, Ronnie Silver told me that his wife was on $10,000 Pyramid, and you want me to get you on the show? You know, and I said, yeah. So he gave me a number. I called him. I auditioned. I got on the show and uh, won ten grand. 
as a young struggling actor in New York. That is one of the nice things about game shows, and you know there seem to be fewer of them now than there used to be. And certainly uh, in the evening, you watch uh, Jeopardy and you watch Wheel of Fortune, you're done. But there is something nice about that idea of yeah, somebody gets something, right? You got ten grand, you get what you, you get oh, a little absolutely. something. So then, of course, you know, so I do ten thousand dollars period, and then I, then I do the series, and then they call me. Do you want to be on as a celebrity on the twenty five thousand dollars period? So I did like eight of those. And I went to the, you know, the circle where you win the 25 grand for the people sometimes. And yeah, it's a great feeling. And years later, occasionally someone would come to me, I just want to thank you so much. You, I, I won $10,000 with you, or I won $20,000. I said, I said, great, can you lend me $5 for a cab, whatever, <laughs> I don't know. So that's uh, Richard Klein on the vagaries uh, of game show life. Uh, also with us, Bob Bowden. His show uh, is The Chase. He's the executive producer. Uh, and uh, that's on the Game Show Network. Uh, Adam Needif uh, is a game show expert, author of uh, game show books, and he's worked for Wheel of Fortune and The Price is Right. Zalman Nakamowski was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and several other uh, game show pilots. Um, so um, yeah, I just want to sort of maybe sort of walk through what a game show is. Bob Bowden, for people who haven't seen The Chase, um, give us your elevator pitch. Sort of give us a a sense of of what that show is. Sure. Uh, The Chase, uh, it is based on a very successful format that's been running in in, uh, England for about four years now. And it involves three civilians who pool their brain power and go up against a trivia genius known as The Beast, (laughs) And through a series of rounds, they answer questions and try to bank money. And at the end, they go head-to-head with him as a team uh, to try to win the money that they've earned along the way. And the, the Beast is like this big, uh, kind of heavy-set uh, British guy who kind yeah. of plays up his fearsomeness, right? Well, the Beast, his name is his real name is Mark Labette, and uh, Labette is French for the Beast, which is how he got his nickname. But he is an imposing gentleman. He is six foot seven and three hundred and seventy pounds, give or take, depending on if it's before or after lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he is actually a very sweet guy who uh, I don't think would hurt a flea, but uh, his character is uh, kind of a a snarky, um, borderline mean, but not really mean uh, guy who will intimidate you with his enormous size and brain power and um, try to get you to gamble so that you'll go head-to-head with him, and uh, he hopes the contestants lose. Um, of course, the viewers at home would probably like to see the contestants win. So, so, and so, at the heart of this, when you strip away the the bells and whistles on a lot of game shows, we still have that this notion: your contestants are basically average people, right? They walk in there with a shoe shine and a smile, and they have a chance of walking out with considerably more. Is is that still kind of at the heart of what you're doing? Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, that's the basic premise of 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 most game shows. I mean, there are. There are celebrity game shows. We uh, we uh, have dabbled in the celebrity world uh, on various game shows I've worked on, uh, and sometimes there are shows that highlight celebrities. But for the most part, the participants are um, civilians who uh, live a normal life and and seek um, usually fame and fortune, some combination of the two, uh, to go on a game show. And, and so, Adam Needif, how persistent is that model? In other words, we, we have all kinds of other things out there now. We have reality shows. We have, have all kinds of stuff. How persistent, how, how much do we still have that idea? 
average person walks in there with nothing uh, could conceivably walk out there with either money or, or merchandise or valuables of some kind. I think it's still a pretty prominent model. Uh, certainly it's persistent throughout daytime and throughout syndicated programming. You've got The prices Right and Let's Make a Deal, both still in production. You've got Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, The Chase, uh, a wonderful show on the hub called Family Game Night, uh, Family Feud, and just all these shows follow exactly that model. It is average people. It's not a cast of characters. It's not uh, celebrity panels, and it's just people looking to win some you know, funny money, something to kind of make their days and make lives a little better. I have to ask the horrible question. I mean, one always hears that you uh, you win some funny money and then the tax burden is just a lot more than you thought it was going to be. I mean, do people really get it to keep most of the stuff that they win on those shows, Adam? Oh, boy. Well, my personal experience, I did, in one lump sum, I've won $2,000 on a game show, which isn't a lot. But out of that $2,000, I lost 400 mm. um, that So bad? that was my experience with taxes. Uh, I'll also tell you with uh, my experience working in game shows, uh, it really does sort of depend on what the contestants win in addition to their prizes. If it's somebody who wins a lot of cash in addition to the prizes, they'll keep the prizes because they can starve off the tax burden. Uh, the way we did it at um, The Price is Right was after the contestants won their prizes, we gave them a list of everything they had won and asked them to sign off and say they accepted the prizes. But we gave them kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, which was we gave them a phone number and said, you have 30 days to change your mind. Call this number within 30 days and tell us what you don't want. Um, and, you know, the reason we gave them that phone number was because we knew people were going to call them. They did forfeit prizes uh, quite a bit. Um, and it's just depending on what their status in life was and what their situation was. Uh, the, truth be told, the average college student doesn't have much use for a grandfather clock. Uh, <laughs> so they were forfeited for those reasons. But other than that, you know, yeah, you are going to have to deal with the tax man, and it it can be a little tough if you're not ready for it. So you do need to go into game shows being ready for that possibility. If you do win a lot, you need to kind of stash away a little bit. You know, Zalman, uh, when you do these shows, when you want to do these shows, whether it's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or some of the pilots that you've worked on and stuff like that, what's more important to you? Is is it that dream that because you're a smart person, uh, you, you could walk out there uh, out of there with some money? I mean, is it about the prize you could win, or is it more about that whole idea of testing yourself in a public arena? Uh frankly, depends on my bank account at the time and <laughs> what I'm sort of trying to do in life at the time. Um you know, when I was flat broke, it was about I need to get on this show. If I was really looking to test myself, I would have gone further on Millionaire. I would have risked it. Fact is, you just have to do a little bit of risk aversion. Some people on these shows, though, oh, my God, they need to teach statistics in school because there are people who are walking away from, like, you know, a 50 percent chance at quintupling their money. And, you know, these people buy lottery tickets. So you're like, hmm, you're not getting it. But um, I would say in general, though. It is about the testing yourself, but the money is a nice side bonus. I've certainly, you know, gone ahead and done shows that I knew were low money or gone for shows that I knew were low money, even though it might make me ineligible for something else in the future. And I've uh, so it's definitely an element of that. But if all you want to do is test yourself, then there are plenty of uh, bar trivia nights that all you have to do is buy a burger and uh, you can participate and, you know, challenge Yaley's down in New Haven, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
Do do you do you think that that same dream, this that sort of idea, the conventional model, average person comes on there and and basically can can excel and, and can win some money and stuff? Is that persisting? I mean, you work on pilots. I don't know what the pilots are like. For all I know, you're you're being chased by alligators or something on these pilots. I mean, is it still the same? Is it is it as Adam says? Well, I, I haven't uh, gone for any. Uh, I haven't gone far in any of the pilots lately. But no, I mean the ones I go for are the traditional ones. There's other stuff there. There's you know ga- reality show casting dot com or I forget what it's called. But there are stuff where people who and a lot of these people are people who want to gain celebrity in some other way. Mm. Um, those people are going to be going for absolutely everything out there. I'm not just because it doesn't play to my strength. I think I'm relatively what I think I'm relatively interesting, but I'm not going to be the next person who's going to wind up on, you know, The Bachelor if I show up on this other smaller show first. Not going to happen. Bob, Bob Bowden, what's the subtext of the chase? What are you selling there? Are, are you selling? It seems to me, watching uh, watching of it, what I've been able to watch, it's a little bit different than, say, I mean, Jeopardy may be sort of the classic model where, you know, it really is one person trying to beat a couple of other people by answering questions. Um, and, and that, you know, you really can have a Ken Jennings emerge, you know, a guy who just in all of the same ways that Charles Van Doren was this big hero, although much more legitimately, obviously, uh, you know, really sort of becomes a, a star because of what he knows and how well he can play this game. Is that the case on The Chase or are you selling something a little bit more complicated as as an entertainment? Well, I like to think that, that we take a traditional quiz model and inject a little more personality than you might be accustomed to or you might expect. Uh, because our main trivia expert, who is the focus of the show, in our case it's the Beast, he's sort of uh, got a character to him, um, and, and we want to bring out that character as much as possible in the show. So I think the highlight of the show, or, or one of the highlights certainly, is the banter between the uh, the contestants and the Beast, and how you know he tries to intimidate them. They may take the bait or not. Um, how well they do in the questions, how well they reason out the questions, which is a way that you could sort of get to know their personality and and appreciate them as more than just you know kind of uh, stick figures who answer questions. Um, I, I think that our show really does focus as much on the human aspect of of the game as the knowledge aspect. And although we we average over a hundred questions per hour, um, I think we really uh, do a g- pretty good job of of making time for some humor, some um, you know moments that that people will talk about the next day. Uh, but I don't think it's much deeper than that. I mean, I, I don't think we're we're trying to change the world. I think we're trying to give people a, a, a fun hour to uh, to uh, answer questions, play along at home, maybe learn something, and really enjoy the uh, the spectacle of uh, you know the beast taking on the civilians. You know, Adam Needif, I'm about to ask you a question, which I think you could probably dilate upon for hours and hours, but uh, maybe in a quick way you can sort of give us your assessment. One of, the, one of the mystery factors of all this, or one of the somewhat mysterious aspects of game shows, are hosts. You know, the hosts, they seem to fit kind of a general model. You could probably 
come up with some of the general attributes uh, of a game show host, but then immediately you could think of somebody who's very popular and successful who violates whatever paradigm you just set up. But what, what can you say about hosts? Why, why Bill Cullen? Why Alex Trebek? Why Pat Zajac? You know, and is it always the same answer? The important thing about a game show host is that you need somebody in there to be a traffic cop. You can't have the contestants uh, policing the game themselves, and there's money uh, up for grabs, and especially not when it's somebody that you've just pulled in off the streets who has no prior experience as a broadcaster. So you do need somebody there as sort of an impartial um, arbiter, so to speak. Uh, And you also need sort of a consistent cast member there. If the winner comes back tomorrow and the loser doesn't, you do need this consistent figure that's going to be there for that uh, day every single day of the week. And uh, just give the audience somebody to latch onto and give them a friend and give them a familiar face and give them sort of a comforting presence that this guy is going to be this part of the show every single day. So you want somebody who's likable enough that the viewer is going to come back to them day after day after day. Uh, so the host is very important because he gives the show flavor, he gives the show personality, and he gives that show, the show the sense of consistency that the viewers are looking for. And the game show hosts are not the most appreciated job in the world. They certainly aren't uh, celebrated the way that we celebrate actors and actresses. But the fact is it's a very, very difficult job, and there are enough bad game show hosts in the entire history of the genre <laughs> to sort of illustrate that. Well, I, uh, and Alex Trebek is the eighth most most trusted man in America. I mean, he I think he kind of is the celebrated guy. Hey, Bob Bowden, real quick. I mean, what 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 do you look for in a game show host? What what works? Well, um, as Adam said, a lot of it is traffic copping. Uh, I think it's somebody who is uh, a, a natural performer who you know feels comfortable in front of an audience, but someone who's also able to step back and let the contestants be the stars. And, you know, it, it's evolved over the years. Uh, you know, when, when game shows first started, there was sort of a mix of some celebrities that tried to do game shows, and then they settled in mostly on people who were professional hosts, who either had been disc jockeys or comedians, uh, who, who had that natural glib ability to, you know, to make people look good and sound good and feel good on stage. and, and and enjoy and celebrate their winnings with them. Um, now we're sort of in a trend where most of the hosts that are, uh, are, are get the jobs are celebrities, uh, either they're um, actors or uh, you know celebrities from another world. Maybe they're sports stars, um, and you know most of those have worked out. Some haven't. Uh, you know I think if you if you look at the success of uh, Deal or No Deal with with Howie Mandel, you you wouldn't have expected him to become a game show host and I don't think he actually wanted to become a game show host but he uh, he found that that format was very compelling and a good fit for his talents and and I think he really owned it and and uh, is so closely identified with it um, when Bob Barker announced his retirement at the price is right that you know there was a, a mad frenzy of of uh, potential hosts who tried out and uh, what was ultimately settled on was uh, Drew Carey, who uh, I think has done a great job. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, an actor and a comedian and, uh, you know, a star of primetime sitcoms. And um, now he's a game show host. And, uh, you know, he, he's really, uh, you know, done the show a different way than Bob Barker did, who was nothing but a game show host and a great one. But um, 
I think the era of of uh, only hosts hosting shows is over. I think I think we're now really more into the the celebrity style of game show. Yeah, actually, researching the show, I even found a game show that Jimmy Kimmel hosted as he was coming up. So uh, uh, maybe everybody takes a bite of the apple, or a lot of people do anyway. Um, we talked to Richard Klein about this too, about uh, what makes a good host, what his experience was uh, in hosting. Here's what he said: I'm a huge, huge fan of Jeopardy, and I'm one of these people because. Uh, I have like all this eclectic knowledge, which is good for nothing, but I watch it, and when they don't get the clue, I yell at the set. Oh, I do the same thing. The pyramids, what's wrong with you? I do a worse thing, which is that sometimes at my gym, all all the little machines at the gym have little TVs on them, too. And if I have Jeopardy on, and I've got my headphones on, and I'm watching Jeopardy, and the person is not, I'll be yelling in the gym. And, you know, heads start, like, turning off. (laughs) Frederick the Great, you idiot! Right, (laughs) Frederick the Great. (laughs) You get so mad at these people that they don't know this thing. Yes. One thing about game shows is there are more game shows that have existed than you or I could ever figure out over the course of hours and hours. But apparently you subbed for Charles Nelson Riley on something called Sweethearts, which was, do you have clear, vivid memories of that? (laughs) Not really, except I was probably scared out of my mind. You know, as an actor, you get these gigs, you do this, you do that. But hosting a game show, it takes a very special skill, which... What is that skill? How would you describe it? You gotta be, I don't know, like... Really, really friendly and 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 interested in the people that you're meeting, but you're also on the air and you want to be lively and you want to be funny, whatever. Personally, I think there's a lot of pressure in trying to be a game show host. And when I see guys like Trebek do it, bless their hearts, I think that they're just they're genius. Or Pat Sajak, they're just really genius at it. Well, Richard Klein, it's so great to visit with you uh, about this as well. And I believe we're, we're actually taping this well in advance. I'll say this, but I believe we'll be on the air while you're still appearing in the Sunshine Boys with your new friend, Jerry Adler. So uh, people should run out and get tickets to the Connecticut Repertory Theater for that as well. Thanks for talking to us about game shows. Thank you, Colin. All right. That's Richard Klein. We've got uh, more to say uh, about game shows. I see. I always feel I can tell whether Alex likes the contestants or not. I, I feel like he, he gives away more, maybe even than he really. You're, you're agreeing with me? Yeah, you can tell. He used to be smoother. He's definitely letting his own cranky personality shine through little <laughs> little jabs. He didn't like Arthur Chu. We all yeah. know that. All right. We have to take a little break. We'll come back with Bob Bowden and Adam Needif also after this. I lost on Are You Smarter Than This Rabbit? How did that rabbit know so much about the Franco-Prussian War? Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our interns are Josh and Katie Pikus. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by John O'Hurley. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff's appearance on Would You Eat That for $100, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose tackles person-to-person biting. And now, back to Colin. 
All right. John O'Hurley, by the way, was my childhood friend. And special uh, salute to, to Josh Nalea for pulling this together. Uh, it was an idea he uh, told us about the first time he met us, and uh, he's made it all happen. And when I say he made it all happen, gotten us great guests like uh, Bob Bowden, executive produ- producer of The Chase on Game Show Network, and Adam Needif, game show expert and scholar uh, who's also worked for Wheel of Fortune and The Price is Right, written many uh, books about game shows. Zalman Nakamovsky, regular visitor to our studios, uh, game show contestant par excellence. So, you know, I'm just going to sort of um, turn us back towards something we were talking about very early on. And so, Bob Bowden, uh, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, one of the things that happened, well, you know, we talked about so the, the, the quiz show scandals in the 50s and it, that kind of knocked quiz shows down for a while. Then they came roaring back in the 1970s. I mean, it was sort of just a, a gigantic time for all these shows. And because production values were up and color television was there, I mean, you could make them look better or more exciting uh, and that kind of thing. And, and there were some various innovators, but one of the innovators ultimately was Chuck Barris, right? A guy who decided, well, really what I could do is play around with human capital. You know, I could I could basically make, you know, two people trying to figure out whether they want to go on a date into the show or newlyweds into the show. I could actually take people's relationships and kind of manipulate them and mess with them on the air and make that the actual game. And I wonder if you see that as one of the forks in the road that game shows took that, that maybe did slowly wend its way towards the reality shows that we have today. Uh, yes, actually, I, I, I completely agree with that point of view. Um, Chuck Barris was definitely a pioneer, and and uh, what he did in the time was absolutely groundbreaking. I mean, he he took a form that was traditionally known to be uh, a variety of different, you know, question and answer games, perhaps some stunt games. There were some games that highlighted people's personalities, and there had been shows that highlighted dating and relationships, but he really elevated uh, that form to uh, a new height that that still lives today. And, and you know, many of his, his concepts, most notably the dating game and the newlywed game, have survived um, numerous incarnations and, and have really adapted to the culture of the country as they, as they grew. Um, you know, in the times in the late 60s when those shows came on, there was a sort of innocence that was broken by that shows, uh, by those shows. And, you know, the things they said on the Newlywood game and just the idea of talking about people's, you know, bedroom habits and, and you know, euphemisms like uh, making whoopee and things like that were, were shocking in their times. And uh, I think they, they did lead to, you know, an, an evolution of the relationship form. And, you know, uh, if you look at, at shows like uh, The Bachelor today, which is, you know, a mega hit for ABC and has been for over a decade now, um, you know, it, it's it's a show that really is at its core, uh, uh, you know, a, a pumped up version of the dating game. And instead of there being, you know, three bachelorettes, there's 25. Uh, and it's a, it's an arc competition show, so it, it takes course over uh, several uh, episodes, over uh, two or three months. And um, but in each episode, you know, the, the the core values are are very much the ones that were established in the dating game, finding out more about what people like and and discovering their, um, you know, their 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 inner souls. Uh, through a course of, you know, in the old days, just question and questions and answers, and they were behind a wall, so you never got to see uh, the bachelorettes. 
you know, today, you know, they're there in all their glory, and not only do you get to see them, you get to date them, and you get to experience them firsthand, and then you make your decision, and and the the conclusion at the end of the the show, or at least most of the seasons, has been a proposal, which was either accepted or denied, and you know that's sort of the the next generation, I think, of what Chuck Chuck Barris had in mind, which was, uh, you know, here's a. Uh, a, a guy who who is looking for love, and here's three women, and he's going to judge them based on just their voice, which, by the way, is is uh, you know one of the premises of the Voice today. Right. That, that uh, you know you you the chair is turned the other way, and you're not judging someone based on their looks, but but on uh, on their performance, and you know in a in a in a sort of a parallel way, uh, it, it, that could. You could say that that stemmed from the dating game as well. Adam Needif, uh, we're running out of time here, but um, I wanted to sort of make one, have you make one point. One, a simplistic way to look at that would be to say, okay, so that really is kind of a fracturing of the original game show covenant that game shows initially celebrated to some degree or other excellence or mastery over subject matter or at least an ability to sort of play the game pretty well. And that, you know, this, so many of these shows are about personal mortification and humiliation. But I'm guessing as a game show historian, you would say, no, there, there have, all the way along, there have been shows that in some way or, or another trafficked in that idea a little bit. Oh, absolutely. In the 1950s, there was a game show called Strike It Rich, where the premise was that poor people came on the show to describe how poor they were. I'm living in a chicken coop. I can't buy clothes for my children. And then not only did these people answer trivia questions for money, but they had a, a telephone on stage called the Heartline, and home viewers could call in to pledge money to the contestant. Uh, there was another game show in the 1950s called Queen for a Day. They'd bring out four women on stage to describe how bad their lives were, and the audience would literally vote on who had it the worst, and that woman got a bunch of prizes. Um, as for why there's a resurgence of it now, I, I think that has a lot to do with the emergence of, as we've been talking about, reality TV. Uh, television is a medium based on looking at your neighbor's paper and copying his answers. And uh, for some time now, television has uh, been filled with reality shows where the aim seems to be to make the viewers say, I'm glad I'm not these people. And I think uh, the reason that we're seeing it now is just that it's a matter of the powers that be, seeing that and trying to give people what they uh, seem to want. All right. We're, we're out of time. This has been so great to talk to you, though. Adam Needif, uh, author of many books about games, including uh, game shows, Quizmaster, The Life and Times and Fun and Games of Bill Cullen. Also worked for Wheel of Fortune and The Price is Right and the founder of Home Game Enterprises, Bob Bowden. We're all going to uh, get hooked now on The Chase on the Game Show Network. I feel like I can beat the beast. Zalman Nakamovsky, I know we're going to see you very soon uh, on another game show, right? Hopefully. All right. A former contestant, by the way, uh, I should say, uh, back when I was on WTIC, I started a game show called Win Those Tweezers, which I, I was trying to come up with the most pointless name for a game show. You, you were an occasional, you, but you were like a celebrity. You, you didn't actually try to win the tweezers, right? Yeah, you were no, like, you were I, like I a, was your alternative for uh, Blotner. For, your, uh, for David Blotner, yeah. Yes. All right. Well, once again, uh, thanks to everybody who participated in today's show. Uh, and thanks once again, especially to Josh for putting this all together. Uh, speaking of, well, these aren't game shows, but <laughs> the nose will be, it sounds like a game show anyway. The nose will be back tomorrow with Luis Figueroa, Teresa Kramer, and Carolyn Payne. We will be talking about what happens when your soccer player bites you.
I'm Kion Wolf, host of Hold Your Breath, where you can win big money if you just... (gasps) 